We're going to look at, uh, we're going to finish our series this morning called Uncomfortable. And um, we're going to look at a particular passage in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, your smartphones, whatever you might have, turn to the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament. And we're going to look at chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. I uh, was born in Henderson, Nebraska, and then from that point, at the age of two, my family moved to Denver, Colorado, and we lived there for a little over a year, I believe. From that point, we moved to Detroit, Michigan, and it was right during the 1967 riots. If you've seen that movie, Detroit, uh, what that all is about, my family lived uh, not quite in the epicenter of there, but just right outside of it. I remember tanks rolling down the street and all that kind of good stuff. Um, from there, my mom says, well, we're not, I don't want to raise my kids in that environment, so we moved back to Henderson. I lived there for my grade school, middle school, and high school years. Went off to college in Lincoln, didn't like that, so then went to Kearney, to Kearney State College at the time, which is now UNK. Um, married my beautiful wife. We moved back to Henderson, and we lived there for about five years, five and a half years, somewhere in there. I uh, went to seminary, so we moved to Dallas. We lived in Dallas for almost two years. From there, we got our first, our first job in Gothenburg, Nebraska, and lived there for, what is it, 11 and a half, 12, somewhere in there. And then we moved to Kearney, and we lived there for 14 and a half, and now we are here in Omaha, all of... Ten, nine months, somewhere in there. Whew, it's a lot of moving. You know, interesting thing about moving is, is that when, when you're living in the space that you're at, if you've lived there enough time, you get really, really comfortable there, don't you? You begin to, begin to know the ins and outs of the different places that you're living. You know, the, the stores, the restaurants you like to go, and you begin to interact with people, and you begin to make friends, and you begin to make lifelong friends. And then when God says, no, I want you to go someplace else, you're ripped away from that and, you're, and you move and you begin to settle in that new place, but you don't really feel like this new place is home yet. Why? Because you're away from the people and the things that were familiar to you and now it's all different. And so then you begin that process over and over and over again, right? I mean, does that seem familiar to you? Nobody's moved. <laughs> It does, right? It just seems familiar. So that's, I mean, that's just what change is all about. That's what happens. And when Scripture says for us as followers of Christ that when we are to live as both citizens and also strangers, this is kind of what he's meaning for us. Is that when we're living on this life as a person who doesn't know Christ, the hope that we have, we place it all in what this world has to offer. And that becomes our home, even though when we die, we're either going to go to a life with Christ or a life without Christ. But our home becomes this place that we live here on this earth. And so all of our hope is placed on, well, if I, you know, if I get married or if I have kids or if I have this house or this great job or money or whatever it might be, uh, amount of friends or significance in my job, that's the hope that we, that's the things that we place our hope in. And when we come to know Christ as our Savior and as our Lord, he says, I want you to think of something different. 
or automatically shifted from this world is not my home. Your home is now, right, going to be with me in eternity. That is now your new home. That's what you've always been longing for is to be united with your heavenly father, is to be united with your savior, Jesus, and to be with him forever. And so now I want you to, I want you to think of this home that you thought, or this place that you thought is your home, all these things that you thought were your hope. I want you to to live there. I want you to um, understand that the kingdom is right now, but it is also not yet. Right, So we live with that tension. We live with that tension of, I know this is not my home, but I know that he's asking me to live here for as long as he has me. But I also know that, that my home is not here, so I'm really a stranger. And so I'm having this hope, right, that one day I'm going to be with Jesus. And so we live as both citizens and we live as both strangers, Um, all the while knowing that our true home is in heaven and that something better is coming, right? That God's perfect kingdom is coming on this earth. And so with that, let me pray, and we'll get into Revelation chapter 19. God, thank you for today. Thank you, God, for everyone that's here. You have purposed for each one of us to be here this morning, God. I pray for those that are normally a part of Finding Life Church, God, that are out on vacation or visiting friends or have other things that are going on, God, that prevent them from coming this morning. I pray for them, Father. Strengthen them, God. Give them joy. Give them peace. God, I pray for us this morning that we will um, listen intently to your words today. God, help us to hear. Help us not, God, to bring up walls of um, that prevent us from being obedient to you. And so, God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are people that um, are to understand that we live in this bigger story of that God has orchestrated clear back from when he created Adam and Eve till when he comes back again through his son, Jesus Christ. And there's a reason that... um, as followers of Christ, that we have this um, uncomfortable, hence the name of the series, these uncomfortable aspects of the Christian faith. And, and we need to begin to embrace these challenges that come at us as a follower, as a son, as a daughter, um, not only in our individual life, but also as a uh, person that has a whole bunch of brothers and sisters and what we call this church family. When we're able to embrace this uncomfortableness of not only our individual life, but also our life as uh, part of the family, we begin to get, begin to see this bigger picture, our more fuller picture of who God is. Um, who or what Jesus Christ has done and who we are as a son, as a daughter, and this hope that we have in heaven. Um, and, and we also get to understand more fully this redemptive work that Christ or that God is doing, um, not only in our lives, but in the world around us. And, and what I want to focus in on this morning, specifically from, Rome, from Revelation chapter 19, is that 
we can understand all of this and, and really go through all of this uncomfortableness, this tension that we feel, if, if we begin to remember, and really all we have to do is remember, and um, the apocalypse. Well, that's kind of a strange word to use, isn't it? Because when I say the word apocalypse, what comes to your mind immediately? Fire, what else? Destruction, World War Z. What are the movies? Apocalypse. Is there a movie called The Apocalypse? There you go. What else? Fire, destruction, the end. All those kind of things, right? We're, we're conditioned um, to think that when we see and, or we hear the word apocalypse. But looking in, in Revelation chapter 19, verses uh, 6 through 9, um, this word apocalypse, depending on which version you're reading from, in the ancient Greek it means something different than what we think or typically think of today when we hear the word apocalypse. A better way to understand the word apocalypse in the context of this passage um, and if you're reading it in the NIV, it doesn't say it, but it says it in other, uh, other versions. Um, in the context of this passage, however, is, is, uh, it's, it's really, what it really means is an unveiling. It's an unveiling of things not previously known. So apocalypse means it's an unveiling of things not previously known. And so in these verses, God is unveiling to his people... What is to come? He's saying to you and to the people that were reading this as John wrote it that this is what is to come. This is, the, this is how the story ends. This great story that started clear back in Genesis. This is how the story is going to end. And, and how it's going to end is this. It says in, Romans, uh, in Revelation 19... Uh, verse 6, and then he said, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And so, um, well, I'm going to keep reading. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so this is what he is saying. Is that he's unveiling to the uh, person who's reading this and saying this is how all of this is going to end with this incredible long-awaited wedding feast between um, God and his people. If you're not familiar with Christianity, it started with Adam and Eve and progressed from there. Sin entered the world, and there was this plan that God had to redeem his people. And all through the Old Testament, there were different things, prophecies that predicted that Jesus was going to come down as the long-awaited Messiah. What they didn't understand, that he was going to come as a little baby. 
and not as a king on a horse or whatever they might have thought it was going to be. He came as a baby, he grew up, and he lived a perfect life, right? And he, he um, went to the cross, obedient to God, died for your sins and for mine, past, present, and future, and defeated death and rose again and, lived in, and lives at the right hand of God. From that point forward, we're told in Scripture in the New Testament that we're awaiting this second time that Christ is going to come back on this earth. And that's something that we would call the second coming. And it's at this point that we are um, eagerly waiting, as Scripture says, this finality of being adopted as sons, as daughters, that we're going to be with our Heavenly Father forever and ever. Amen. And it's at this point that is what John is talking about, this culmination um, where Jesus is coming back and we're finally reunited and this is called this wedding supper, this wedding feast. And so the first point of this morning is that God has told us how the story ends. And I don't know about you, but when I go see a scary movie, I don't like scary movies. I don't like them at all. But if I'm forced to go see one, which sometimes I have been, what I will do is I will scour the internet so I can look at the spoilers. I've never known an article where it says spoiler that I don't care. I'll read the spoilers because I want to know how it ends. And that's how I can go to a scary movie because I can go, and I don't tell the people that I know the spoilers, but in my heart, I know how it ends. And so I know when the parts where they're going to jump and all that kind of good stuff. And that's how I can get through a movie like that. I know it's weird. But I don't care. Otherwise, I'd be just a bundle of nerves and I'd be going like this and I'd have to walk out and, and then I wouldn't be a man. And that's no fun. <laughs> no, that's not true. Now maybe it might be. Um, but anyway, right? Because when we know the ending, it, you're just less anxious. You're less concerned. You can endure. You can watch the movie and go, yeah, I'm brave. And everybody's jumping and screaming. Uh, no big deal, right? That's what it's like. And this is what he's saying. We know the ending. Yeah, our life is messy. Yeah, it doesn't go the way we want it to go. Yes, we don't know when our life is going to end and all of that. And it's hard. But we know the end. And the end culminates at this beautiful wedding feast when we get to be with God forever. Matt Chandler talks about this. He talks about Revelation 21, but he talks about, um, and I'm just going to highlight a few things that he said, but one of the things that he talked about, what I thought was really um, cool, is where you place your hope, where you place your hope is imperative to your experience of joy. Where you place your hope is imperative to where you experience joy. Where you place your hope is directly tied to your joy. Because if you put your ultimate hope on things that cannot hold the weight of these hopes, then you will more than likely be forced into anxiety and anger and will more than likely respond to anxiety and anger with control and manipulation which, by the way, is not good for relationships. We tend to do that with our marriages. We tend to do that with our kids. 
or the hope to have kids. We tend to do that with our jobs. And those are all fine things and all good things that God will give us. But if we ultimately put our hope in those, they're ultimately going to disappoint. And so this phrase of where I put my hope is imperative to your experience of joy, I believe is true. Is that we can put our hope in those kind of things, but our ultimate hope needs to be right with God, with Jesus as our Savior, with Jesus as our Lord, understanding that we know how the story ends and whatever happens on this earth is okay because I know that that is what's waiting me. And that is incredible. I want you to think through... um, In Romans 8, he goes on, uh, Chandler goes on, and he talks about how Paul in Romans 8 said that the world is groaning, that the world is groaning because it's not the way it was designed to be. It's just interesting to me. Or nor what it will ultimately will be. And in Romans 8, Paul says that somehow the creation knows that. And it groans and it aches and it wants to be set free. And so it's watching the children of God Um, with eager anticipation until one day when it's going to be set free. Um, He also quotes uh, Augustine, who says, when he looks out at creation, he goes, if these are the beauties afforded to sinful men, what does God have in store for those who love him? And I thought that was incredible. Uh, Last night, we were at uh, Soaring Wings, or Winds, Soaring Wings, uh, the winery in Springfield, and it was their balloon festival and bla- blues, blast, blues, some of it was blahs. No, blues festival. It was really good. But towards the evening, we saw, I you know, glanced to my right, and there was the sunset. And it was just incredibly gorgeous. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And, and listen to this quote with that, um, if I can find it. Wherever you see beauty, you need to be reminded. Every time the sun sets and you see the sky pink and red and stunning and you feel that little ache in you, that this is what God has created and this is beautiful. Just remember that that's not what it was when God created it in the beginning. Because sin has marred it. And that's not what it's going to be. Isn't that amazing? Everything that we think when we travel and we see Niagara Falls and any other beautiful thing that you've seen that God has created, it's not what it was and it's not what it's going to be. That to me blows me away. When I think about all the beautiful things that I've seen, it reminds me again that this hope that we have, what we think heaven's going to be like, what we think what being with God is going to be like, is not even it really pales in comparison to what it really is going to be like. And that, to me, is amazing. So God has told us how the story ends. 
And so I think the application for that is in the midst of discomfort, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of this mess of our life or the challenges that we have, when things break down in your house, your car, or anything else that happens, frustration in the church, frustration with people that you call your brothers and sisters with family, we can find comfort in the fact that God has already told us what happens in the end. And that as his church, we will be his bride at this incredible wedding feast. So where we place our hope, that's where we're going to find our joy. Number two, God calls us to move away from comfortable Christianity. So I, my wife and I have three girls, and we've had two weddings so far, and our third is the end of June. And every one of them um, were different, but similar in the sense that our daughters did not come to us and say, you know what, mom and dad, forget the wedding dress. I'm just going to wear sweatpants and a t-shirt, and um, we're good, right? No planning, don't need to spend any money. You know, I might, I might be dazzling my sweatpants, but that's it. You know, we're good. <laughs> no, our daughters didn't do that, right? They went dress shopping and wanted the, the dress that fit their personality, and that's what every bride does for the most part, right? They, they will do that. They'll spend months and, and there's anxiousness and let's just leave it at that. There's, there's a lot of that that goes into these weddings because they want to look the best for the man that they are marrying. And when we think about the church, right, the church is no different for this thing called the wedding of the Lamb. Scripture uses this imagery that the church is called, right? Um, that this bride is being made ready. But the church doesn't solely prepare itself by its own doing, by its own doing good works and striving to be like Christ. We're also adorned, right, as Scripture says in Revelation 19, that these fine linens, um, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. So it's this gift from God that, that we must accept, this gift of grace that we must accept, this gift of righteousness that can only come from Jesus Christ that we must accept and we must wear, that we're going to wear. All the while, while on this earth, right, we're not there yet, and so we need to, as Scripture says, work out our salvation. And so we continue to, to do good things, to do good works because of this love that we have for God and that flows out from us. We have this both and thing going on. Understand that this gift that God has given us, he spared no expense in that. It's like if I were to say, daughters, you have my bank account, so go ahead and spend $100 on this dress, you know, whatever it might be. <laughs> You have it all. Go, go, whatever. I'm going to spare no expense on this wedding, this dress, to getting you ready, whatever it might be. And that's what God has done, right? He spared no expense on getting the church ready 
for this wedding feast by sacrificing his son, Jesus Christ. The ultimate sacrifice to prepare us and the love that he has for us at this, at this feast. With that, though, comes this call to be his sons, to be his daughters. And it's uncomfortable because he's asking us to make some very life-changing sacrifices. He's asking us to embrace things that we may want to avoid. He's asking us to um, just all these things that we've talked about throughout this series. As soon as we place our faith in Christ, and you know this, we have immediately attached ourselves to other brothers and sisters in Christ, whether I like them or not. Whether they're weird, well, listen, we're all weird, right? We, we established that. We're all weird. So whether they like football or basketball or don't like sports at all, whether they are crocheting um, bakers, uh, I don't know, many other things, don't like golf, like golf, whatever it might be, right? We're all put into this together. Not every one of us likes the same things. Not every one of us has the same personality. Some are extroverts, some are introverts. Some like to talk, some don't like to talk. Um, some like to run, some don't like to run. All those kind of things, right? And we're immediately put into that, and God says, go be a family. Go be a family. All those things that rub you the wrong way, hey, you have the same spirit inside of you. You have the same Christ inside of you. You were called, God is the same Father to you as to me. So what's the big deal? Work it out. Work it out. It's uncomfortable sometimes because we butt heads and we don't like to back down and pride gets in the way and all of that sin stuff gets in the way. But when we begin to understand Right, that we know the ending of the story, and um, God calls us, this Christianity thing is uncomfortable. He doesn't want us to be comfortable Christians. He wants us to live uncomfortable, in essence. And part of that is to um, embrace, and dare I say it, grow fond of the people that God has put around you, which means look around, looking back, look to your right, look to your left, look up front what you already are, right? So you need to grow fond of me. <laughs> uh, I can, I'll give you dollar bills later if that'll help quicker. Um, anyway, but that's what we're asked to do. Uh, Rod Dreher said this, the best witness that Christians can offer to post-Christian America is simply to be the church, as fiercely and creatively a minority as we can imagine or we can manage. Too many of our churches function as secular entertainment centers with religions, with religious morals slapped on top, where they should be functioning as the living, breathing body of Christ. We will need to commit ourselves more deeply to our faith we will need to do that in ways that seem odd to contemporary eyes. And so here's the application for that, that we need to resist the, the tempting draw of empty, comfortable Christianity, remembering that it is the church, right, 
with all of its uncomfortableness, with all of its struggles, with all of its frustrations, that is the bride of, bride of Christ, that's bride, the bride of the Lamb, right? And that's what's out in display for the world to see. The last point, we've got to run through this quickly. We can rest in the hope and the anticipation of the comfort that is to come. And so this comfort that is going to happen, right, when we're in heaven with God, that we can rest in this hope and anticipation of that comfort. The last part of that verse in Revelation um, 19 talks about that when, the, uh, when John says, I want you, the angel says, I want you to write this down, that this is true. This is the true words of God. So a lot of times in the Old Testament that um, they were looking towards this event and they didn't know when it was coming. And then when it came, it was a real historical event. And, and what John wants us to know, that this second coming of Christ, this wedding feast, it's going to happen. That this is true. It's a, going to be a real historical event. And it's something that we need to anticipate. But when we're doubting, when we're struggling with that, we can go back to this and say, all right, yep. This is true. This is going to happen. And we're going to end with this. Throughout this series, we've talked about um, the uncomfortable aspects of being a follower of Christ. And I'm hoping that we've gotten across that this idea of family, community, is extremely important because it's not only important for each one of us, but it shows the watching world that this can happen. When two or many creatures that are sin-filled can come together and really enjoy and grow fond with each other and get over our differences. And that there's a reason for all of that. Because we know the end, right? And we can take comfort in that. And that's the reason why we do what we do. It's the reason why teams get up in the morning early to set up all of this. It's the reason why teams get up to set up kids' life and, and all the sound and the tech every week, and they do that. I want to close with this from the author that we took a lot from this series. This is what he says. Seeker-friendly Christianity tried to revive the church by infusing it with the logic of the marketplace. Hipster Christianity tried to revive the church by obsessing over newness and relevance. Both of these approaches were efforts to address Christianity's PR problem, attempting to convince an increasingly secular population that Christianity isn't as weird Stodgy, traditionalistic, legalistic, homophobic, judgmental, anti-intellectual, regressive, and conservative as they thought it was. An admirable, admirable goal to be sure. Yet as typically happens, the pendulum with these approaches swung too far in the other direction. To the point that Christianity became more about apologizing for itself and affirming the culture than about extolling Christ and, and transforming the culture. Rather than pointing uh, confidently to the way of Christ, the church has narcissistically critiqued itself and praised the culture, all while Christ is relegated to a supporting actor role. We've become bored with our own story. I think that is so true. 
or we've just become ignorant of it. And so naturally, the people that are around us have as well. We're a bride who forgets why she fell in love in the first place. We're a bride who often takes off her wedding ring in public because we're ashamed. We've lost eyes to see the loveliness of the covenant we are in because we're too preoccupied with how skeptical, how skeptical onlookers see us. We assume the only way hipsters and seekers and anyone else who might like us, who else might like us is if we offer a safe place Christianity. One with endless caveats, asterisks, apologies, and trigger warnings, and fair trade coffee. Yet seeker-friendly and hipster Christianity failed to invigorate contemporary Christianity because they've been too embarrassed to lead with the admittedly uncomfortable truth that a Christianity with no teeth, no offensiveness, no cost, and no discomfort is not really Christianity at all. It attracts the masses to something vaguely moralistic and therapeutic. We call that therapeutic moralistic deism. But mostly just affirms their eat whatever fruit you want freedom and status quo comfort. On the contrary, uncomfortable church is what grows and stretches and builds the body of Christ to be effective in the world. It may be seeker-friendly or unfriendly, but it will be friendlier to seekers in the long run because it will actually transform them. Comfortable Christianity is not going to change your life. It's not going to make a dent in the world. If the church is to thrive in the 21st century, she, meaning the church, finding life church, must recover the jarring and profound paradoxes of what Christ calls her to embody, a kingdom where last is first, where giving is receiving, where dying is living, where losing is finding, where least is greatest, where poor is rich, where weakness is strength, and serving is ruling. It's a kingdom where worldly comforts are nothing compared to the power of the comforter in us, where all manner of uncomfortable things are endured for righteousness, for righteousness' sake. It's a kingdom of salt and light, which is to say a kingdom of difference. Salt is worthless if it loses its flavoring and preservative function. Light is valuable only insofar as it is contrast to the darkness around it. The church needs to see all of this not as an embarrassment or an albatross, but as a privilege and a joy. <laughs> we need to be in awe of it, wowed by it, compelled by its immensity. Every time the plate of wafers and juice, which is our communion, passes down our pew, which is we come up front, every time we grab the sweaty hand of our neighbor to pray. Every time we sing the praise chorus refrain for the 67th time, as if in the Hillsong equivalent of Groundhog Day, we must see that it is all miraculous. The creator of the universe is in our midst, present in the mess of it all. Regardless of its routine, the reality of the church is revolutionary. I pray that you say amen to that. However unpopular we are, our purpose is profound. As salt and light, we are the hope of the world. We are mysteriously part of a cosmic plan God has eternally known, and we have an eternal inheritance. The discomfort and disdain we endure in this place is if it is or is in this, in life, in this life as a peculiar people would be a blip in the timeline of our infinite history. We will at last be the perfect church we presently long for, the unblemished bride and an unimaginable wedding feast, and that's where the dream will be real. That's what I believe Finding Life Church started.
from a man and his wife and a group of people has said we want something different. We don't want comfortable Christianity. We want to be known. We don't want to hide. If we're dealing, I mean, that's the phrase, real is better than perfect. It's okay to not be okay. It means that if you're dealing with whatever sin it might be, you bring it to the light with people around you so that we can love and pray and journey together with you. All of us have something. And I pray from the deepest part of who I am that that's what this becomes based on what it was started and we just keep building on that. So I love this next song and I know we're long and I apologize. But would you stand with us and just sing your hearts out of God's incredible, reckless love for us. <laughs>